racial and ethnic disparities in use of medications for treatment of COVID-19. Is there a role for antibodies in people with asymptomatic COVID infection? How much death is due to antibiotic microbial resistance worldwide? And individuals with a fractured arm, wire it or cast it? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, how about if we turn right to JAMA? This is a study taking a look at what I thought was rather interesting, subcutaneous administration of antibodies in people who are infected with SARS-CoV-2. So this is an antibody cocktail that we're familiar with. It's called Regen-CoV. Generically, this is casirivimab and emdivimab. These are two antibodies that attach to different parts of the spike protein on the COVID virus. It's been approved for people with mild to moderate disease in the hospital, given as an intravenous infusion, and it's been recently tested in the outpatient setting. You can get high enough antibodies levels giving it subcutaneously, not quite as much as you get intravenously, but high enough to be effective. So they've tested this in individuals that are close contact with individuals that are known to be infected. In the early part of the trial, they determined that it can help prevent infection if you give it to close contacts. Part B of the study, and that's what we're reporting on now, is, okay, so let's say you're in close contact and you develop COVID, but you're asymptomatic. They had over 314 individuals that had been exposed to family members. They got COVID, but they were asymptomatic. And half of them got a single subcutaneous injection of Regen-CoV, and the other half received placebo. Those that received the antibodies were less likely to progress to symptomatic infection. For those that did progress to symptomatic infection, they had reduced viral loads, reduced symptoms, and they were less likely to be hospitalized or to die. Let us talk then about this method of administration, which is what piqued my interest, the subcutaneous versus the IV and the problematic nature of IV infusions of antibodies, which has been a rate limiting step. That requires some sort of an IV infusion center. It's more expensive. And what they discovered is when they measured antibody levels, that obviously they're very high after intravenous administration, but even after sub-Q, they're high enough to neutralize the COVID virus. Being able to administer these in an outpatient setting to individuals that either are asymptomatic but have been exposed or now asymptomatic and infected is now beneficial. So that's a huge benefit. What are you thinking about practice changing here with regard to use of antibodies? And then, of course, we have to talk about these two antibodies and whether they're helpful with Omicron. Yeah. Okay, so let's address the latter. This study was conducted primarily before the Delta variant was in high prevalence, certainly before Omicron. So I don't think we have enough data for this particular antibody combination. Proof of concept is giving antibodies that are effective subcutaneously in an outpatient setting. This extends use of these antibody treatments. Well, I'm hoping we're going to see more adoption of that because this brings us very nicely to MMWR, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, and a look at racial and ethnic disparities in the use specifically of monoclonal antibodies among various ethnic groups across the United States. Basically, this report asserts that there have been no large-scale studies yet that have examined the use of monoclonal antibodies by race and ethnicity. So this takes a look at the PCORI Research Network from 41 U.S. healthcare systems across the U.S. 
US, mean monthly use was at 4% or less for all racial and ethnic groups in this time period that was studied. And so that's why I'm pointing to this notion of, wow, could we convert to sub-Q and get a lot more uptake? Hispanic patients received monoclonal antibodies 58% less often than did non-Hispanic patients, and Black, Asian, or others received them 22%, 48%, and 47% less often than did the white participants. Clearly, this is really concerning. They also took a look at inpatient treatment, and they looked at dexamethasone. The Hispanic inpatients received dexamethasone 6% less often than the non-Hispanic inpatients, while Black inpatients received remdesivir 9% more often than did the white inpatients. Overall, the use of monoclonal antibodies is pretty low, and these disparities clearly are problematic. They do discuss in here, well, why is that? They hypothesize that there's quite a few things that are possible, certainly innate distrust of the healthcare system, a lack of knowledge about whether or not these things exist, having to make your way to a treatment center, as we just talked about, where you have to have this IV infusion. Maybe they don't have adequate insurance coverage in order to cover this particular treatment. But this study, of course, doesn't take a look at that. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up. It just shows there are disparities. It doesn't point a finger as to why they are. Some of it may be access to testing or access to care. Some people don't have a primary care provider, whether the treatment is distributed or supplied to certain geographic regions or not. Finally, there's hesitancy about whether they want to receive these treatments. So a lot of reasons that we need to look at. I do agree with you. I was surprised that use of antibodies was only about 4% overall. They're really targeted towards those that are the highest risk individuals, just because there are limited resources available to provide these. Would your thought be that if there was a conversion to subcutaneous administration, there might be more uptake of monoclonal antibody treatment? It depends on what the underlying reason is. If it's because of transportation or lack of insurance or lack of primary care or lack of education, the fact that it's subcutaneous won't solve those issues. I think the next step in this is, okay, we've identified disparities. Let's drill down and let's figure out what's causing those and what we can do to alleviate them. Okay. Let's turn now to the BMJ, a big problem, especially for older women, wrist fracture. And gosh, should we be using external devices in order to help? We talk about wrist. We're not talking about the bones in the wrist themselves, but the distal radius, the long bone from the elbow to the wrist. Fractures of this are relatively common. 6% of women will have sustained such a fracture by the age of 80 and about 9% by the age of 90. What happens if the bones are displaced? Orthopedist has to get them lined back up. But then in these patients, particularly the older ones, how do you keep them lined up? The typical practice is to use wires to do that. There has been some studies that suggested that just putting a molded cast to hold it immobile can be just as effective. So that's never really been studied. So that's what these authors did. They took 500 adults aged 16 and over. They had a displaced radial fracture. They set it, and then half of them got randomized to wiring, the surgical procedure. Half got randomized to a cast. And then they followed over, over 12 months. What they discovered was when they looked at pain, discomfort, and function, at 12 months, there was no difference between the treatments. In fact, there was no difference at three or six months either. However, about one in eight patients who had the molded cast did require surgery, but those patients were no worse for the wear. They did just as well as the overall group. Among patients that have a displaced radial fracture, surgical fixation with wires did not improve outcome just compared to a molded cast. Yeah. So to me, this sounds like this is a 
pretty big population, and I guess one I was completely unaware of. And it's mostly from falls, Elizabeth. Elderly people are more likely to fall. They have decreased motor strength, balance, and osteoporosis as well. The nice thing about a molded cast is it's less expensive. It doesn't require surgery, and it's effective 87% of the time. Well, I like this study because, as you know, I'm a big fan of let's avoid surgery if possible, not to disparage our surgeons out there. Let's finally turn to The Lancet, one of their gigantic studies. This is the global burden of bacterial antimicrobial resistance in 2019. They looked at deaths and disability-adjusted life years attributable to and associated with bacterial resistance for 23 pathogens and 88 pathogen drug combinations in 204 countries and territories in 2019. They obtained a tremendous amount of data, 471 million individual records, 7,500 plus study location years. I can't even imagine the computing power it must take in order to put all that stuff together. They divided all of this data into five broad categories. Number of deaths where infection played a role, proportion of infectious deaths attributable to a given infectious syndrome, proportion of infectious syndrome deaths attributable to a given pathogen, percentage of a given pathogen resistant to an antibiotic of interest, and the excess risk of death or duration of an infection associated with this resistance. Based on their models, they found that there were an estimated almost 5 million deaths associated with bacterial antimicrobial resistance in 2019 including 1.27 million deaths attributable to bacterial infection itself with an antimicrobial resistant organism. Kind of predictably, the place where most of this or a lot of this, the greatest percentage of this took place, Western Sub-Saharan Africa. They also found that lower respiratory infections accounted for more than 1.5 million deaths associated with resistance in 2019. Also, they found this one pathogen drug combination, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, was the big pathogen with regard to this death burden. Well, as you said, this is a huge database. They were able to identify the most common infections, the most uncommon infectious agents. A couple of disappointing things. Of those six agents that were most common, only one of them, pneumococcus, actually do we have a vaccine for. The other five bacteria we don't yet. But individuals that haven't had pneumococcal vaccines, they need to get them. They did come out with some practical suggestions. This information is helpful in looking at antibiotic stewardship and making sure that we're not prescribing antibiotics for conditions that we don't need them, for viral infections. For conditions where we do have vaccines, like the flu or rotavirus, we start with the viral infection can mold into bacterial infections. So we need to make sure that those vaccines are given. They also made a plea for having the appropriate antibiotics in these under-resourced countries. Because if everybody's getting the same antibiotics all the time, or more importantly, we have a lot of people being infected where there are no antibiotic treatments, you have variants, just like we do with viruses. And these variants are antibiotic resistant. So making sure we have appropriate antibiotics available. And then finally, we need to be studying newer antibiotics that can treat these resistant strains. Well, I think it's impossible for me anyway, not to reflect on the idea that 1.27 million deaths in 2019 directly attributable to this. That's really a very large number. In fact, there are more deaths from that than there are from malaria and HIV. So yet one more thing to worry about. On that note, then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and 
make healthy choices.